The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In a few days, we will be celebrating, experiencing Independence Day. So this idea of independence, very strong in this country. So let's take a look at true meanings or different levels of independence, freedom. The power of acting from one's own free will, sense of freedom, not being coerced, not being coerced either by external forces or by necessity, self-sufficiency, sense of independence. What do we mean by independence? And how independent are we in actual fact? So we look at different levels of free will. In Buddhist practice, this becomes gradually challenged when we start to see how our minds, thoughts, moods, perceptions, all of our motivations, how they start to, to work. It starts to challenge the idea of me being someone who is able to make free choices in my life. So let's look at this idea of freedom. Now, to the degree that we live blindly, and we all do to some degree, you know, just living by habits, then we really have no freedom in those areas. There's no real independence there. Someone says something to us that we don't like, we respond. We, you know, we respond in a predictable way. We see something that we want, that we like, desirable, if we're, not, if we're not paying attention, then this immediately starts to change the course of our life. Something that I, will, I want, we need, have to have more. If I'm going to be happy, I need to get this, I'll hold on to it. And then that starts changing our behavior. We start working towards gratification of whatever that is. So... It's hard to even think of examples in our own life of where we're blind, where we're truly living blindly, because we don't even notice it. It's hard to even notice. Sometimes other people are our best uh, allies in that regard. Start to meditate for a while and realize, whoa, geez, I, didn't, I didn't realize that I had this habit. Oh, look at that. And you say to your friends or partner, say, oh, I notice I have this habit. They say, yeah, you've been doing that for the last 20 years. <laughs> so sometimes other people can, can see things that we ourselves may be blind to. So that in that way, everyone becomes our teacher. So this idea of developing this quality of clear awareness becomes so important in a Buddhist lifestyle. The whole idea of mindfulness. Mindfulness, clear awareness, paying attention, essentially all synonyms. So mindfulness is not the be-all and end-all of Buddhist practice, but 
there's a good reason why it's emphasized a lot. And starting to figure out ways that we can develop uh, a more refined mindfulness, a more continuous mindfulness throughout the day, then starts to uh, yield many benefits that we wouldn't even have recognized, wouldn't even have uh, hoped. But everybody's different, so you can't say, oh, if you're mindful, this is going to be what you'll discover. You're mindful, then you start to discover what is going on in the present moment. You know, what's motivating us? Why is it that we do what we do? So many of the, the motivations are actually hidden in darkness. Whether it's fears, desires, insecurities, I mean, so much of what we do, we may not clearly be aware of why. Why are we doing that? Why, why have we chosen a certain profession? Why is it that we've chosen certain um, uh, situations, relationships. Why is it that we like what we like or, or are working towards what we're doing? Why? So finding ways throughout the day from the time we get up in the morning till the time we go to bed at night, how do we become more clearly aware? How do we develop this quality of mindfulness? Mindfulness is, is a mental state that we all have to some degree. Animals have it. But it's not refined, it's not developed to the extent which is really useful. I mean, we're mindful enough that we can function. Everybody, well, most, <laughs> most people. Most people are mindful enough that they can function. You know, we're mindful enough that we can drive a car along the highway at high speeds with almost, <laughs> with very little mindfulness, actually, sometimes. And still, we're able to function, you know, without crashing the car. So living in this way, we're, we're, able to we're able to live with only a small amount of mindfulness. But it's not necessarily conducive to happiness. Because then we only see a very small portion of reality, out of the whole spectrum of reality, we just see maybe a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit there, and then that's what we base our perceptions on. You know, we don't base our perceptions on seeing everything very clearly. We just see a little bit here, a little bit there, and then we tend to keep seeing the same things. You know, we keep paying attention to the same things and ignoring maybe the majority of our experience, certainly the majority of our mental experience, all the thoughts, moods, perceptions, there's so much going on, even if we consider ourselves reflective and, and sincere, without training in mindfulness, it's very difficult to, to really to see clearly what are the causes of happiness. You know, if I do this, what are the results? You know, what are the causes of unhappiness? We all do what we do. Why? Are we... we conceive of happiness in some form and we want to work towards happiness in some way, why is it that it sometimes seems so elusive? So starting to pay close attention to, to everything. All right? So then we learn tricks. We learn techniques just for, for paying attention to, to everything that we do. Establishing our awareness in our body. Now, our body is, 
is always there in the present moment. And it, it is, it, compared to the mind, you know, it's relatively stable. Body's constantly changing, but we can always come back to being aware of our body as an anchor in the present moment. So whatever we're doing, when we're sitting, then be clearly aware that we're sitting. Just notice, what does it feel like to sit? Something so simple, but even as we're listening to a talk, then there's still some body awareness. When you're working at your computer, how easy is it to forget that we have a body? And we just... So easy to get sucked into the, the graphics or the information. So always maintaining some sort of body awareness. And sometimes we, we have to figure out how to do that. Like if you're working, especially if you're, you're working with information, then periodically, regularly, just pause. Close your eyes. Take three Mindful breaths, just being aware of all the sensations of the air coming in, going out. Just three breaths. Everyone can do three breaths, I think, without the mind wandering too far. And it's so good to then reestablish our connection with you know, our physical reality, the present moment. If stress is starting to build throughout the day, you know, often we're not aware of it. We're not aware until maybe we just stop and take a few deep breaths and we notice, wow, it's only mid-morning and already my shoulders are tightening. And we just take a few deep breaths and help to relax, relax the solar plexus and start over. That way, it's very helpful for not allowing stress in whatever form it takes to, to build up throughout the day. And ordinary things throughout the day. Just, you know, even if you live a busy life, then you still have to shower. I hope. Right? We still have to shower. And, and so while you're showering, say, okay, this is a time for meditation. Body awareness. Right? Hot water sensations, soap, cleanliness. Right? And just pay total attention to having a shower. When you're brushing your teeth, right? How boring is it to brush your teeth, but you have to brush your teeth. At least once a week. <laughs> so you brush your teeth and say, well, you're thinking, what are we thinking about when you're brushing your teeth? You're thinking about the future, what someone else said, something you have to do, right? We can, we can almost brush our teeth in our sleep. We don't need a lot of mindfulness, but we can then take that very simple action and say, I'm going to make this into a daily meditation. Right? Every, every day when I brush my teeth, I'm going to pay total attention to the whole process, all the sensations of the brush and the teeth and the mouth, and then when the, the mind starts to wander, you just come back and pay attention, just brush your teeth. And then how about the rest of the body? Kind of brushing our teeth with one hand, but then paying attention to the rest of the body, too. So gradually, bit by bit, through these, you know, through these daily life activities, we can literally start to make everything into meditation. Of course, even when you meditate, it's hard to meditate. Right? You sit still with your eyes closed, no visual distractions, 
Maybe some sound, maybe not a lot of distraction. And still, it can be challenging to maintain a continuity of awareness, moment by moment, staying in the present moment, watching the sensations in the body, watching thoughts arise, pass away. So then when we open our eyes, when we get up, transitioning from sitting posture into doing something, walking back and forth, doing something simple, washing the dishes, getting dressed, preparing for work, going, walking to your car. All of these are opportunities for meditation. Instead of just walking because we have to, you know, we have to get somewhere. Every time we start to walk, think, okay, now I'm going to do walking meditation. We establish mindfulness with the every step. The foot coming in contact with the ground or the floor, movement of the legs. How do we hold our body when we walk? So then every step becomes meditation. Then every time you're walking from your house to your car or walking through a store, instead of it merely being functional, then take it as an opportunity to be fully aware. Now I'm fully aware. Now, if you're walking through the grocery store, you don't have to do walking meditation in slow motion like they do in some Burmese techniques. It's like lifting, moving, placing. You know, with walking meditation, you don't, well, with anything, you don't have to act weird. You know, you just, you just try to pay attention to what you're already doing. Yeah? You know, bring your awareness into, uh, into the moment. Right? So we train with the body in that way. But then what that does is open up an awareness of what's going on in our minds. Right? So many of the thoughts and the moods, perceptions and the motivations, the fears and the insecurities, the anxieties, you know, just because we're not aware of them doesn't mean they're not there. Right? They're still there. They're still controlling our life. They're still kind of motivating us to do some things. They're still uh, forcing us to avoid other things. Yeah. But when we start to even train simply in becoming more aware with the body, then we realize, oh, there's a thought. Oh, there's a fear. Oh. There's, right. And then uh, we, we start to get a handle on, oh, I didn't realize, didn't realize I carried around this background stress so much. Right? Didn't realize how much background anxiety I carried around. Or I didn't realize that, oh, I'm only doing this because I want other people's approval. <laughs> right? You know, it's, it's like, why do we do what we do? And then we realize, trace it back, trace it back, think, the only reason I'm doing all of this is for other people's approval. And then you realize, oh, I don't, that's not so important. And then gradually we start to learn what independence is. Yeah. We're not just blindly reacting to desires, fears, uh, anger. Right? And these are very powerful, motivating emotions. You know, they tend to drive us you know, through life. Things that we don't like, you know, we're, 
we're just motivated to avoid those things. And the things that we do like, we're motivated to try to grasp onto them and hold them and, and maintain them. And all of that creates atten attention. It's hard work. So looking for opportunities throughout the day to, to develop this continu continuity of awareness, and we start to experience at least some level of, of real freedom. So then when a thought arises, we have a choice. I can either follow that thought or not. Right? If we're not aware, we're just following our thoughts, thinking that this is somehow more real than it actually is. Now as we become more clearly aware, there will still be times when emotions arise and we're aware of the emotion and we accept the emotion or the fear and the, or the desire and we accept it, we know it's there and still we can't stop ourselves. Right? Can't stop ourselves from following it. Right? So again, we're not totally free you know, when that happens. You know, there may be times when people say something to us and get angry. And we, you know, we have enough self-awareness to know, okay, this is anger. I'm experiencing anger. If I respond by saying this, it's just going to make it worse. But I'm going to say it anyways. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyways. Ah, it feels so good just to let it out. And then, of course, it, it makes the things worse, makes the situation worse, and it creates even more difficulties. Right? So then we realize, well, you know, our mindfulness just isn't strong enough yet. Our wholesome qualities just aren't strong enough yet to sometimes you know, compensate for, for strong moods and emotions that can arise and just take over. But, you know, when, when uh, a thought arises and mindfulness is, is a bit stronger than it, then you can see it objectively. You just see something object objectively, okay, well, there's a, there's a mood. Hmm. And if we're truly mindful, it just tends to evaporate. Hmm. Or maybe it's something that is actually wholesome. We're aware of, oh, I'm, I'm feeling happy, open-minded, and generous today. Right? Now that's a wholesome quality. And so instead of just noticing it passing away, you can actually pay attention to it, encourage it, try to bring it to fruition. Any wholesome qualities of mind that you know is arising, then, then uh, put effort into making that stronger. Even if we have good habits but we're not mindful, the Buddha would say it's, it's not as good as being mindful of our bad habits. Because even if we have a lot of bad habits, but we, we're clearly aware of what's going on, we're going to be motivated to make the changes that are necessary. We're going to be motivated because we can see when we do act like this or, or say this, 
it doesn't lead to our happiness. It doesn't lead to other people's happiness. It doesn't lead to benefit. You know, so then we're motivated. The mind in, our mind's naturally inclined towards happiness if we give it enough information. So with mindfulness, we're, we're always trying to see things more and more clearly, trying to get more information, accurate information, gradually trying to see things more and more in accordance with reality, as much as we possibly can. And we start to notice how what we consider reality is uh, clouded by the perceptions that we project. This is a whole other area. How we perceive reality, what we perceive as reality, for the most part, is a projection from our own minds, from within. It seems like we are being aware of something that's externally real, but actually the majority is projected out. And so when everyone is projecting out and perceiving reality in literally different ways, living in their own realities, then of course people are going to form different opinions based on that. People have radically different perceptions sometimes. Sometimes perceptions are similar, but sometimes get a, a room full of people, everyone's looking at the same thing, everyone's hearing the same thing, and yet people can come away with radically different perceptions. How does that work? It's because the perceptions are based on causes and conditions from a whole lifetime, a whole lifetime of, of conditioning. Or just the mood that we have at that particular moment is going to color how we perceive things. So that becomes our reality. So that limits our freedom. That limits our true freedom greatly. But gradually we try to see things just as they are. And so and sometimes people ask, well, how does paying attention to your breath lead to wisdom? How's that going right? to? Just sitting there, closing your eyes, breathing in and out. How does that help? Well, we can become more and more aware of sensations without levels of projection and interpretation. For example, now you're sitting meditation and discomfort starts to arise in your knee while you're sitting meditation. If you sit meditation long enough, I can assure you, pain will start to arise somewhere. So you're sitting meditation, discomfort starts to arise in the knee or the ankle or the back. So initially you can just, you can just be patient with it and stay with the breathing or whatever your meditation object is. But then as time goes on, discomfort or the sensations become stronger. And then, then there's, a, instead of moving, instead of shifting your posture, then say, okay, now I'm going to consciously take these sensations as my meditation object. See what I can learn from that. Try to stay still because that helps keep the mind still, keep the body still. But then look at the pain. And it's not a matter of trying to be tough. It's a matter of trying to see things as they truly are. Now, we may think we know what a pain in the knee is. We definitely know what a pain in the neck is. 
or you think you know what a pain in the knee is. Right? But even that, even the concept pain is a few levels removed from the actual reality. You label something pain, immediately there's going to be a negative connotation with that, unless, you know, unless you're kind of weird. <laughs> Some people like pain, but okay, whatever. For the most part, if you label something pain, immediately there's, there can be a, a, a physical tightening or a mental tightening. It might be subtle. It might be, it might be very obvious. Right? So don't even try to label it pain. And you're paying attention to your knee and sensations in your knee. But then even, where is this concept my coming from? That's also just a projection, identification with a part of the body, my knee. Well, let's see if we can just get back to the sensations themselves. Just pay attention to the sensations, even calling them unpleasant. Right? Unpleasant, you don't have to call them, you don't have to label them anything. And just notice there are sensations. Now, are they stable or are they moving? Uh, what does it mean to have, what do we mean when we say there's a pain in the knee? Is it pressure? Is it, is it heat? Is it, what is it exactly? Does it move around? And when we start to uh, cut through these layers of perceptions or, or labels, then we get closer and closer to reality. And if we can do that with just noticing sensations in our leg, first of all, it doesn't hurt so much. And, and second of all, we, we start to learn that habit of, of seeing things as they truly are without, without adding, without immediately adding layers of projection or interpretation or identification. And if we can do that with sensations in our knee, then we can start to do that with other areas in our life. And again, that opens up whole new areas where we feel more free. We're not just bound by conditioned reactions. Right? Now, we all have social conditioning. We all have family conditioning. Right? You can't erase that. I mean, I grew up in southern Minneapolis. I played in Minnehaha Creek, and I swam in Lake Calhoun. I used to cut across Lake of the Isles in the winter to go to school. Right? So that conditioning from growing up in a particular place at a particular time, that doesn't disappear. But whatever conditioning that we inherit, that we, that we the influences, from our family, from a particular place and time, society. That doesn't have to define or limit who we are. It will be an influence. But if we're to the degree that we're able to see things as they truly are, we're not limited by the conditioning that we experience. Right? If we don't, then then we are very limited by that. We, we tend to simply be a product of what other, other people's opinions, what we happen to read, what, what we hear, um, where we happen to have grown up. 
type of parents that we have. Right? I mean, these are powerful influences, but these don't have to be. These don't have to be a prison. Right? They can be a prison, but they don't have to be a prison. You know, there is freedom available there, but you know, sometimes it takes a little bit of work. It's not just something that uh, is going to come naturally. Now, the way the Buddha talked about the law of karma is intrinsic to this idea of, of developing true freedom. The way the Buddha talked about the law of karma is that the whole history of the universe, he didn't actually speak of it, that's a bit new agey, but all of the causes and conditions from beginningless time yeah. have led to this moment. And so whatever is happening, according to the law of karma, it is absolutely perfect, whether we like it or not. It is, it is absolutely perfect according to a series of causes and conditions that has led to this present moment. And then how we respond to that is going to create results in the future. Right. So there's this dynamic relationship between the, re the results from the past manifesting in the present, how we respond to that, and then that creates cycles for the future moment after moment. It's like that. And so when we realize this, we realize, wow, there's actually a huge amount of freedom available. If we think that all of these causes and conditions come and uh, have created this moment, and then it's forcing us, it's just forcing us to, to do this or forcing us to do that, then we really don't have a lot of freedom. And sometimes, you know, we, we, uh, there's a lot of illusion of freedom. All these things come, happen, and then, and then there's this idea that I'm making a free decision. I'm making, now I'm making a free decision to follow whatever I want to do in order to be happy. But if we really look at it, really start to investigate how our minds work, how, how thoughts arise, what are the causes that lead to thought, what are, what are the conditions which arise to create motivations and intentions. I remember when I first started really looking at my mind, almost every decision I had made in my life seemed very predictable. When you start adding in all of the elements, you start looking at you would think, well, I didn't grow up in a Buddhist family. I didn't grow up in a Buddhist culture. I, I must have made a very free decision to become a Buddhist monk. How radical. But then, moment by moment, looking at how, uh, what influences there were in my mind. Even small decisions. Say, well, if there's this influence and this influence combined, together with maybe this mood, then... It's, it's like almost completely predictable that the result is going to be like this, or this decision is going to be made, or that I'm going to say this or do this. 
And it's a bit humbling because we tend to like to think of us as free acting agents, people who are independent, really celebrate our independence. And yet when we, we carefully look at all of our influences, realize we're not that free. So every moment when something happens, bringing awareness to that and seeing, okay, well, there is, I have these range of options on how I, how I respond. So again, coming back to an example, let's say someone says something to us, we feel upset. So at that moment, there's just sound happening. There's sound, there's interpretation in our own mind, projection of what that meaning is, you know, interpreting that sound, assuming we know what the other person is saying, that somehow um, challenges our ego, our, our self-perception, what we want, and therefore, we get upset. And so, even at this moment, if we can stop and notice what's going on, and come back and say, well, what is the wise response to this? Right? The conditioned response is to maybe do what we normally do. But we don't have to. I mean, there's no freedom in, in just doing what we normally do all the time, especially if it's not going to be leading to a good result. So let's say we're, you know, something happens and we're about to get upset and then kind of come back to this point and say, well, I actually have the freedom to respond how I want, you know, what is the wise way to respond? And sometimes it, it takes some effort. It takes some, some willingness to try something different and it takes some courage to break out of old habits and say, no, I'm not going to respond in a stupid way. I'm not going to respond in a foolish way reply in a foolish way or, or react in a foolish way. I'm going to learn how to react in a wise way. So what does that mean? Right? Well, every situation is different. Sometimes it means just being quiet and aware. Sometimes it means saying thank you very much and then maybe wait, wait for things to cool down a bit. Right? Sometimes it means carefully choosing one's words. Very carefully choosing one's words at that time when you don't feel like carefully choosing your words. But then we start to experience this greater degree of freedom, you know, bit by bit by bit. We start to experience what it truly means to be free. I mean, it's interesting to, just to see what, how people define freedom. How do we think of it? What do we think of as freedom? I mean, just the ability to. Uh, to be as selfish as we want, <laughs> right? No, there's not really, not really any freedom there. The ability to uh, just follow desires whenever we want. Again, you know, there's no real freedom there because we're just we're just following our conditioning. Right? Real freedom comes with, you know, we start to understand, start to get a handle on. Well, certain things are going to lead to happiness. Right? Certain things are going to lead to wisdom. Wisdom, essentially, is, is the uh, 
understanding of how to develop refined levels of happiness, satisfying levels of happiness. But we start to get a handle on that and realize, okay, some of the things that we used to do, thinking that that was going to lead to happiness, when we start really paying attention, say, oh, well, actually, it's not, not very effective. <laughs> Other things which we thought, well, that doesn't look fun, right? Being a monk, that doesn't look like much fun. <coughs> but then, uh, you know, you try some of the, try some of the, the, <laughs> the specific things, and you realize, oh, actually, some of the things that I didn't expect to, to be leading to happiness, actually do lead to happiness. And then, without forcing oneself, naturally, we tend to uh, change our behavior, modify our behavior. You know? We start to transform. Then we really start to experience, you know, some level of freedom. But then as you get deeper and deeper, that which is making the decisions, that, that part of the mind, that, that uh, awareness, which is watching, deciding to, deciding not to do this, deciding to do this, right? We're still identifying with that, aren't we? Yeah. If we identify with that, that's also limiting our freedom. So clearly decisions are being made, but then even taking this teaching of non-self back to the, the awareness which is watching, which is being aware, which is paying attention, right? because every time we identify with something, we lose a little bit of freedom. So even if, even if we're living very consciously, very aware, said, you know, I am making wise choices in my life. Well, there's a little bit of attachment there. <laughs> still creating a sense of self. Still identifying with that which is making decisions. So you can take this practice deeper and deeper and deeper, and you have to keep challenging yourself, you know, because we're always falling into old patterns. Or even sometimes when we think we're, we're really starting to get it right, then suddenly, you know, suddenly, oh, what happened? You know, we just fall into old patterns, and we kind of lose it for a while. And even when it's going well, then you think, well, okay, how can I challenge it a bit more, refine the awareness? Because there's always more to discover. There's so much going on. So gradually, bit by bit, then we start to experience, oh, well, this is what it means by freedom. I mean, even something as simple as if you sit meditation for half an hour and you just have a few mindful breaths where you're not a slave to your thoughts, when you're not just pummeled by, by a continuous verbalization in your mind, you have a few moments of spaciousness, you think, oh, that feels really free. And then you realize, well, that's possible. You know, that's possible to develop and refine and deepen and becomes more and more profound. And when you start to get a taste for freedom, you realize, wow, this feels good. I like this. And it's intrinsically peaceful. It's intrinsically conducive to feeling satisfied and happy and, 
and, and fulfill. So I'll offer this for your reflection this evening. Happy Independence Day. <laughs> so I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. Anything you might like to discuss, please feel free. So be careful. Um, I'm Andrew. Um, a big part of what you were talking about actually connects to something I've been wondering about lately in terms of uh, the idea of recognizing our lack of freedom. And I found that to be really helpful in terms of like viewing past uh, mistakes and whatnot more lightly. But when it comes to like current decisions, for example, like, oh, do I want to go to the Dharma talk tonight or do I want to sit at home in front of the TV with a beer, you know, um, there like there is awareness there. But I, I'm struggling with the finding the skillful way to not turn that into like letting myself off the hook. Like, oh, well, I didn't have a choice anyway. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> should, I, should I meditate and go to the Dhamma talk? Or should I just stay here and fall asleep in front of the TV? I'll keep watching my mind and then we'll see what happens. Right? Or sometimes, well, this idea of challenging that who is making decisions is not a way to get out of taking responsibility. Right? It's not like, do something you really shouldn't do, and you say to your partner, I had no choice in the matter. There's no one here making decisions. <laughs> that doesn't go down very well. Because on the committal level, you know, we still have to take responsibility, and, and uh, you know, we, we act you know, with a sense of self, and gradually we are, are less and less limited by that. But it takes effort. It's not simply a matter of being aware. When we talk about Buddhist practice, it's not just awareness. Right? It's awareness and right effort together. Right effort has to go together with every factor on the Noble Eightfold Path. Of all the different factors, for every factor you have to have both sati, mindfulness, and right effort. So right effort is, doesn't just mean trying hard. You know, it's very specific. It means when when there are unwholesome states of mind, when we can recognize unwholesome states of mind, then we make an effort to, to allow them to cease, right? not feed them, right? and do what it takes to keep them at bay. And then try to give rise to wholesome states of mind. Kindness, compassion, forgiveness, patience, simply being aware is a wholesome state of mind. Joy is a wholesome state of mind. You know, there's all these... You know, just finding ways to bring up wholesome states of mind. And then making the effort to have them persist. Right? So they're not just feeling a moment of generosity and then let it pass. Right? You feel a moment of generosity and say, okay, well, how can I develop that? How can I, how can I you know, feel a heart opening a little bit and say, okay, well, let's develop this more and more and more. 
So, so would it be appropriate to say that uh, we're not in control of what aware of when awareness arises, but once it does, it's up to us to choose what to do with it. We're not in control of when awareness arises, but you can train awareness so that arises more often. Awareness itself is a wholesome state of mind. If we pay attention to being aware, it's going to grow. Whatever we place our attention on tends to grow. If we place our attention on ruminating over something that is depressing, that will grow and grow and grow and, until it becomes overwhelming. If we place our attention on feeling thoughts of compassion for people who are less fortunate than we are or who are experiencing a difficult situation, if we keep coming back to that again and again and again, that quality of compassion becomes stronger and stronger. And after a while, people think, oh, you're a very compassionate person. So, well, maybe. I don't identify. You don't have to identify with it. Ident even identification with wholesome states of mind is, just kind of gets in the way sometimes. But whatever we place our attention on will get stronger and stronger. So um, if, you, if you're being mindful and you're clearly aware that you're mindful, and see, well, how does it feel when I'm aware? Well, it actually feels a bit more free. It feels more spacious. It's like we're surrounded by a sphere of, of awareness. And then a sight comes into that, and we can be aware of the sight, but it doesn't shake our awareness. Whether we like the sight or we don't like the sight. You know, we see something we like, but we're still kind of stable and peaceful. We see something that we don't like, that maybe 10 years ago would have upset us. But just sort of seeing, but it doesn't shake our awareness. Thought arises, pleasant thought, unpleasant thought, memory, traumatic memory. You know, even traumatic memories can arise then within that sphere of awareness, but then you know, not shake the awareness itself. And so the more that we place our attention on that awareness, the stronger and stronger it gets. Especially when we see that, you know, how beneficial it is. Hi, my name is Ali, and uh, it, it, uh, one of the things you talked about was habits sometimes seem juxtaposed to uh, freedom. So if we're caught in our habits, we're really not acting freely. I saw a study recently, and they were looking at successful people, and one of the things they discovered were the people that were really successful had a lot of positive habits, and they had simple habits. Uh, for instance, when they ordered a coffee, it was always an espresso, pure and simple. They didn't have to think about, do I want this, do I want that? When they drive on the road, they always go at 65. When they meet somebody, they shake their hands, they look in their eyes, they've developed some positive habits so they don't spend a lot of energy figuring out how should I respond to this situation. And so once they've developed a lot of positive habits, that frees up their energies to be aware of other things. So I'd be curious to hear on your take on that. Part of it depends on what your goal is in life. You know, um, if we're clear that our goal is to become a successful CEO, 
then certainly there are habits that we can develop that will assist that. Or even if our goal is, is to become a skilled athlete, then you have to develop very good habits of discipline in order to make that happen. And to be successful in that way doesn't require a lot of mindfulness. But to be successful on, you know, even in, even in those fields, to take it to another level of success, mindfulness is very, very helpful, right? Let's say you're, you know, you're meeting somebody. You're shaking their hand. Yes, that's a habit. But if you're not clearly aware, you're not tuning into that person, right? You're not... You won't have a clear memory of their face and their name, and then you, it will be difficult to remember details about them. If you want to be successful um, at work or with other people, then being clearly aware all around right, is, is essential. Be able to, to understand, uh, intuit, you know, what is this person feeling? Where is this person coming from? Uh, and then, you, and then you become more and more skilled at responding in just the right way, depending on, on who is there. Even in sports, you, know, you, can, you can blindly develop um, physical skills. But when you combine that with a very clear all-around awareness, then you create magic. Right? Then you start to whether it's the, the zone, you know, or just uh, uh, learning how to flow, getting into a flow which kind of transcends the, uh, just having good habits. Now the thing with being mindful even of our good habits is that it, it doesn't take any more energy. It doesn't take any more time. It doesn't, um, it, it's, if anything, it, it's more efficient. We become more efficient with our energy. But, you know, even if we have good habits, blindly following good habits, we're not going to learn anything new. So if we want to be successful, usually we're, we, we aspire to keep learning, learning new things all the time, you know? really having a sense of creativity. If we're just following even good habits, we're not going to keep developing or improving. Or, or and then, if, even if we're kind of just following good habits, then we may not clearly notice the benefit of the good habits. Right? So there are times people do things because our mothers and our fathers have taught us this is a good thing to do. You know? when, you know, when you do this, when this situation happens, this is what you do. Why? Because I told you so. And it's a good thing to do. So we may do it throughout our life, and then you know, it's effective in a sense. But we may not clearly see why it's helpful, right? If we, have a, if we do something that is kind or generous or helpful, supportive of somebody else, and we're clearly paying attention to that whole process, and then we see the causes that go into it, 
and we pay attention to all the results. We see the results in the other person, we see the results in our own mind. And if we're doing something good, then the results in our own mind are, are going to be leading towards a sense of happiness, satisfaction, feeling uh, good about ourselves, wholesome se sense of self-esteem. right? And we, we recognize, wow, when I, when, this was maybe a, a good habit that I blindly did for a long time, but then when I paid attention to the results, now I recognize why it's a good habit. Now I know why my mother taught me to do that. And then we're motivated to, to do that again and again. Not just because someone told us so, or not just because of social conditioning, because we firsthand can see the, the benefits for ourselves. So say we have a friend, and our friend is uh, critical. And um, we realize that, and it can throw us off, but we do better. So we can, we can accept it however we would rather they not be critical. And we feel that it affects their relationship with other people. So is there something that we should be doing to help this other, well, I don't know. I mean, would you even term that? Is that helping the other person? What, by teaching them how, how not to be so critical? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> Anytime we think in terms of trying to change somebody else, we're getting into dangerous territory. <laughs> right? But let's say you're in a, you have a friend who's critical. Now, criticism in and of itself might be helpful, might be justified, or maybe it's not helpful and it's not justified. But at least we could, or let's, say, let's say someone criticizes you. Now, that's challenging to our self-perception, challenging to our sense of self. So there's a bit of uh, tightness or friction there. That's unpleasant. Okay, we can pay attention to the physical, unpleasant physical sensations, maybe tightening in the body, unpleasant mental tension. Right? And then from that, we try to maintain some objectivity so that we're not just replying blindly. Right? Oh, there you go, being critical. I didn't do that. I don't do that, <laughs> right? So we say, okay, well, okay, there's that criticism again, but what was the criticism about? Is it, is it valid? So, well, you know, sometimes we look at criticism and we think really sincerely, no, I, it doesn't seem valid, right? Or, I, or at least we don't see where it's valid. Other times, we, you know, criticism, we think, okay, I could do better, yeah, All right? And so then you take something which is maybe painful or irritating, but kind of put a positive result on that and say, well, maybe I can try to improve, right? 
And then you can say, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> and the, that's one of the things the, the Buddha says. You know, when someone offers us criticism, say, oh, thank you very much. You've, you've offered me a precious gift. Huh? And uh, so now I can reflect to see if this is true or not. I can give me the opportunity to uh, overcome my blind spots. And potentially, you know, in a, I mean, criticism can be coming from a, a place of caring or it just can become from a place of someone who's just critical and irritable. But, but it can be useful, right? And so even if another person is, is criticizing us not from a caring place, still they may have a valid point, right? So you have to separate out the, their intention and the actual, uh, you know, the thing that they bring up. Right? The thing they bring up might be valid. Their intention may not be in the right place. Right? So we can't change their intention, but we could maybe take that point and then say, okay, well, that in itself is something, yes, I could work on. Right? And how we, how we respond will change the other person. We'll change your friend. Even if we don't actively try to change somebody else, which is sometimes a recipe for disaster, how we respond will affect their behavior. Someone criticizes us and then we tense up and, and become defensive, that's just going to encourage you know, similar behavior for them. If they criticize us and we respond, say, oh, thank you very much. You've offered me a great gift. They, that will definitely change their behavior. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you don't have to do. You don't have to go that far. But you know, even if you just respond by saying, "Oh, okay, thank you," and just staying calm, just staying calm, and say, "Oh, fine." Like, oh, look at that. They didn't get upset. And then that becomes an example for them. You know, a positive example for them. And then gradually, consciously or unconsciously, their behavior starts to modify. So if you, yeah, it's a classic thing, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. You know, so if you want to see certain qualities um, in another person, then model those yourself. And then that will have a, uh, an effect on the other person, whether they know it or not. Or just get a different friend. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, my name is Don, and uh, thank you for this talk. Um, what were some of the things that you found as a monk that, uh, that you found that brought you happiness that you didn't think was going to bring you happiness? And I know you said the the freedom from the, all these thoughts, being bondage to these thinking. But was there anything else that that you you found happiness in being a monk? Well, the whole idea of of renunciation kind of has a bad reputation in, in modern America. 
know? It seems to be, it's like, well, you're going to try to be happy by giving up the things that you want to do? It doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, a lot of the things that we give up are just the things that lead to suffering. <laughs> right? I mean, we don't, we don't you know, the Buddhist path is actually designed to lead to an increase in happiness. Right? So, so kind of more clearly seeing, oh, those things that, you know, there are a lot of things that I may have done in the past for fun. Initially, maybe it took a little effort to kind of not do that anymore. But then pretty quickly I see, wait a minute, you know, I wouldn't want to do that now anyways because it doesn't lead to clarity. It doesn't lead to a greater sense of happiness or satisfaction. So sometimes that's, that's surprising you know, to see, well, what are the real causes of happiness? Um, this idea that happiness is gained by grasping onto something goes very deep. It's very, it's very difficult to, I mean, theoretically, you know, we hear that from the beginning in Buddhist practice. You know, if, if something is pleasant and then we try to grab onto it, and grasp it and hold it and keep it and control it, then we're killing the happiness and also that thing we're grasping has already changed. You have a perfect moment, you try to grasp it, but it's already gone, it's already changed. And so it only makes sense to, to, to develop a relationship with reality where we're not grasping, but just appreciating, experiencing. And then there's a next moment. Then we can appreciate that or live in that. And, so that's one thing, because you take it on different levels. And even on different levels, we're still grasping. You know, we may grasp onto wholesome states of mind. Thing, even grasping onto wholesome states of mind, well, the, right? you know, get a good meditation. You think, God, I want this to be forever. Right? So every time I meditate, I'm going to hold onto it. And of course, as soon as we do that, we, you know, we kind of ruin the meditation. The only way you can continue on is just by kind of backing off. So this, that habit of, of assuming we're going to be gratified by holding on to something that we want, actually it needs to be challenged, and, and the opposite is true. So when we let go, when we let go of grasping, then, wow, it feels uh, free. Uh, mine is bright, unencumbered. Oh, this is actually what I wanted in the first place. <laughs> And you realize, oh, it's just, you know, it's there all the time. The potential for that is within us all the time. And so this whole inclination to, to look for happiness and satisfaction externally starts to be challenged. You, know, you realize that, oh, wait a minute, you know, the thing that I really wanted, you know, the thing that I really wanted from all these scenarios was, was here the whole time. And, and available from within. So that's one example. Um, living with other people was a surprising, I had a lot of surprises. You know, when you live with other people, a whole monastery full of other monastics from a wide range of different countries and cultures and personalities, and, and uh, you always learn a lot from that. 
I think initially a lot of us become forest monks, for example, because we, uh, we love the idea of sitting in the forest or a cave, meditating intensively, striving for enlightenment. And then the reality is you, you enter this community full of uh, people with a lot of idiosyncrasies. And, and day after day, you know, even the people you like eventually start to irritate you. You realize it's kind of like being married. <laughs> and I think, I think, you know, that little habit that used to be kind of cute, now it's just irritating. It's like, and you, so living with other people then becomes a real practice. And, and, and often some of the, the most benefit comes not from developing meditation in solitude, but from interactions with other people, right? And just learning how to be patient and kind, and no matter what someone else does or says, you know, keep coming back to unconditional loving kindness, which means that, you know, no matter what they say or do, you know, having loving kindness for them, right? And th that takes some effort, takes some work, and then gradually a lot of the rough edges are worn off in community. You know, we just learn how to be patient all the time. You know, it just takes incredible patience. And, and no matter what somebody else does, you just, okay, just forgive and forgive and forgive. And, you know, and uh, it doesn't necessarily, just because you forgive once doesn't mean anger goes away. You know, sometimes you have to come back again and again and again. And it can be hard work. You know, but gradually, you know, transformation happens. Hi, my name is Anka. <clears throat> my question is about freedom in relation to um, in relation to witnessing pain in people who we love. So my son was and I were yesterday for most of the day in um, uh, the emergency room and he was in pain and looking at me wanting a release and <clears throat> I was watching, I was watching the, I was noticing the way my mind was going and feeling these waves of wanting to, to feel his pain as if that would take it away from him or various ways of controlling the pain, just pushing it away or just all sorts of um, ways of dealing with it. And um, I just wonder what, other than sending compassion, a lot of uh, love, unconditional love, what are ways we can, um, we can cope with that? Well, when we see someone else in pain, physical pain, mental pain, having difficulty, then if we're open, if we have an open heart, a sensitive heart to some degree, then we try to empathize with that. Right? This is what we mean by compassion, is empathizing with other people's pain, but not to the degree that it's causing us pain. Right? If, we, 
if we see someone else in pain and we ourselves start to get depressed or sad or uh, upset, uh, start to cry, right? Then it, it has gone beyond compassion to the point of now we're just feeling pain, right? And sometimes we, we, we can't avoid that, right? It's not like we always have a choice. Emotions are very powerful. But at least recognizing you know, to the degree that we can, can just be there patiently empathizing, but all, at the same time, you know, compassion is a very <coughs> positive, beautiful emotion. It's not, you know, if it, if it goes too far and then we become painful and upset or depressed, then that's not a beautiful mind state that we're sharing with the other person. So, so it's tricky, you know. It, it, but just, just watching when compassion turns into our own pain and then kind of going back to just compassion, empathizing with other people's pain. And then, I mean, there's always people, there's, there's always suffering around us, right? It's not just necessarily the, the obvious ones of when people we love are in pain, but, you know, people are all around us, you know, are in pain in some way. And so then we become sensitive to that. But if we, if we take on other people's pain too much, then we just become overwhelmed. And we become burned out. And then it's not beneficial. But compassion, if it's truly compassion, it will keep, it will be self, the energy will be self-generating. You know? It's purifying. It, it allows us to be very sensitive and caring and, and recognize the pain in other people's lives so that we can respond to that without getting entangled in it. So that's a real art to be able to, to, be able to do that. And of course, if it's someone you know, as close as your, your son, then it's particularly difficult to do that. Hi, my name is Jesse. I'm trying to not make any drastic changes in my life, as some people do, and then repeat the same habits internally and fall into the same pitfalls and not learn anything out of their situation. And the last 10 years or so of my life has kind of fallen into a plateaued rut of sorts. And about two years ago, I've turned down this path. So my question is, as I'm making changes in my life, I'm noticing it far too easy to slip back into old mental or emotional habits because so many elements of my life are the same. So do you have any advice on the threshold or the balance point to which when I should try to make changes versus sitting where things are and learning from them and adapting and adjusting how I'm responding to those elements in my life. Does that make sense? I think so. So on, on a couple of different levels, 
I mean, on a most basic level, even simply being aware will, will affect changes in our life. You know? And increased awareness will affect changes. So when we, when we keep striving to become more mindful, more clearly aware, more attentive, then that will automatically start to create changes. But there are situations where, let's say, let's say you're in a situation where you have a friend who's very critical. <laughs> For example, theoretically. And then, and, you know, it's a, on one level, you can just take this as a, as a Dhamma practice. Right? No matter who you're in relationship with, you can take that as just paying attention to that and watching our responses to that so that it really doesn't matter at all who your friends are or who your partners are from the viewpoint of Dhamma. Right? You just watch, watch the reactions and you can always learn something even if it's unpleasant even if it's mostly unpleasant or painful, you can always learn something from that if mindfulness is strong enough, and if you have the right attitude. However, at some point you may think, you know, I've been doing that long enough. Maybe I deserve a friend who's going to be conducive to complimenting me <laughs> or supporting me or whatever, right? So then then there's no, there's no clear guideline to say, now is the t this is when you make a change and this is when you don't make a change. Right? The general guideline is, if a situation is leading to an increase in wholesome states of mind, then you stick with it. If it's leading to an increase in unwholesome states of mind, then make a change. Right? So, even if we're in an unpleasant situation, if we're being able to, if we're mindful enough to be able to turn that into an increase in wholesome states of mind. I mean, it's often we learn the most in painful situations, right? Whether it's big painful situations or sometimes just, just being patient with the irritating things in life is more beneficial than trying to eradicate the, the irritating things in life. Right? And sometimes things are so smooth, like you're on a plateau, but not learning anything new. Maybe you're kind of getting into a bit of a, an area where it's fairly smooth, but don't really feel like we're progressing or just noticing that Maybe the, you know, we're just not noticing that we're becoming more kind and more compassionate or expanding you know, the, the sphere of our loving kindness or we don't feel like we're becoming more wise even though things are relatively stable and pleasant. And you think, well, maybe I should make a change or do something. You know, not to bring in more suffering in your life, but to make a change in some way to try to stimulate that you know, process again. And that's hard, you know, especially when you, you know, when you, you reach places in life and situations where it's fairly pleasant and stable and, and, and nice, then 
finding ways to, to challenge that so that we continue to grow, you know, reminding ourselves not to become complacent. Yeah, this is following up uh, Marcy's uh, question here. I guess I would not be too hesitant maybe to confront someone's unhealthy behaviors. And the reason I say this is probably about 35, 40 years ago, I was in a social situation where I was making a lot of critical comments of other people. And this woman said to me, you know, you're really hard on other people. And that, that just stuck. That just really hit home. It was like the earth shook. That was probably one of the most significant moments in my life when she said that. And, um, and it still sticks to this day. I mean, I'm catching myself, even the way I look at strangers, you know, I'm looking at them with, you know, mind of meta or am I, you know, judging the way they look or whatever, but that, that one sentence that she said just really hit, and it really stuck. So it, it can have a good impact. Right. So she offered you a precious gift. And at the time, sometimes we don't want to hear, hear criticism, but then sometimes when we reflect back, often it's the people like that who we're most grateful towards, feel the most gratitude for. Uh, I, Ollie, again, I, I keep coming back to this habit thing. I'm thinking of certain things like I, I get up every morning and I meditate regardless. So my alarm goes off at 440 and I meditate. Now my awareness at that time says I'm sleepy and I'd like to hit the snooze bar and sleaze longer, sleep longer. But the habit energy gets me up and I meditate and I'm always glad I do. And if I don't, I mean, I really feel like something's missing. So, I mean, when I think of it that way, I think of it as strengthful. I'm also a therapist, and I, and I think when I'm in therapy, I, I, I see myself as in flow. I'm with a patient. I'm there. But I've learned over time, at the very end of the session, I always ask, did you get what you came for, or is there anything else you need to talk about? And I always find that regardless of how good a session I think I've had, if I throw out one or two of those questions, it'll be like, oh, there is one other thing. You know, and, and so I look at some of those habits as being really positive and open and freeing and opening things up. And not in the sense of them being rigid, but in terms of just being helpful kind of thing. I mean, granted, habits can be very rigid, but they can also be very helpful in certain areas, I think, and, and be freeing. That, that's been my experience. So I, you know, I don't want to keep beating on that. Yeah, I, I encourage people to have good habits. Right? I'm not discouraging people to have bad habits or, or to try to get rid of your good habits. It's just that even with good habits, if we fall into a kind of maybe a semi-blind habitual behavior, right? it's not as good as if we were fully aware. Right? Fully aware. I mean, it sounds like you're aware of it. You know, if you get up in the morning, even when you don't want to because of, out of habit, and then you, you recognize how this makes you feel, 
you see the benefit of it. You experience it firsthand, so you know what it feels like. And so that motivates you to keep doing it. Right? Same thing with, with you know, asking the right question at the right time when you're interacting with another person. You see the benefit of it. You're being aware of, of that process. It doesn't sound like you're just blindly uh, going through these good habits. This is a <clears throat> kind of a personal question about uh, I was kind of at a crossroads, you know, where the river was about to fork. And I was in a relationship with a woman. But in order to continue that relationship, I would have had to give up the relationship with my daughter because she wanted me to move down south with her. And then, but the other part of me, the, the love for my daughter, knew that that was not the right choice. So I chose my daughter. But I still, inside my heart, in my mind, I still just feel conflicted because, you know, me being a selfish human, you know, I want to, like, fulfill my wants and desires. But as a father, I want to, like, you know, take care of my daughter. And, you know, because she'll be going to college in, like, three years. So that's kind of, this happened just recently. So it's something I've been struggling with, the independence, the old habits, and the choices. Just thought you might have some insight. Yeah, life always has forks in it. You know, wherever, almost every day, certainly regularly, we encounter forks where we could decide to go this way or that way, and it's uh, often not very clear. You know, what's the best decision to make? When uh, when it's something like you have a child, then you know there's a certain karmic responsibility, you know, that comes with that. You have a child, then, then that's karma that has been made in the past, and then you want to kind of follow through with that. So, in that sense, you probably made a wise choice. Although it's, you know, it's difficult to know 100% what to do every time, and analyzing it with thoughts. Not, does not necessarily lead to the right decision. Often the best decisions are made when you just sit, kind of, you know, you know, you know all the reasoning on both sides and benefits and drawbacks, but just sit and you know, breathe with it, and just breathe into your heart, you know, breathe into your belly, and just say, well, whatever needs to happen, let it become clear. And that usually gives us a better outcome, a more accurate outcome of what the right thing is to do at any given time. Thanks for being here. Um, I guess I got a question about, um, you know, what you just said about how the decision comes through sort of a deeper place and we're not really in control of it. We're more like listening, like the relationship between mind intent and how organic change and influence 
and relationship happens, um, like it wasn't my mind intent to improve my relationship with my father, but it sort of started to happen and I noticed it. So one thing I find that the... Um, I mean, I tend to follow the intuitive side more, but that uh, sometimes the way I know things are changing is the world around me is changing, and then I'm going, oh, it's different now. And I guess, I guess in this, my question is, so there's a little bit of a loss of control because I have this faith that, you know, good's going to come by this practice, but I don't really hammer down on that mind intent that says, you know, we got to be aware, we got to be aware, we got to do this. I don't know. What's the relationship to you between control and letting go of control, of like being aware, but not trying to like steer the river? I mean... In almost every situation, <clears throat> if you can just try to get yourself out of the way, the result will be better. So it's the loss of self that's right. The more we, often what's creating the problem in any given situation is our sense of self, ego. You know? We just get that out of the kind of get that out of the way, and then a lot of the problems either either the solutions become much more clear or the problems tend to fade away by themselves. But sometimes you sometimes it, you have to rely on willpower too, you know, it's a balance. You know? Sometimes if you when when uh, when undertaking right effort, sometimes you still have to rely on a conventional sense of self to try to motivate oneself to do the right thing and or, you know, not to follow our defilements. But even that, you know, if we do it with too much self, it's going to get in the way and spoil it. So there is effort. There is certainly you know, persistence and energy that leads to change. But if you can do that without the self-dominating or trying to control everything, the results are much better. <laughs> okay. It's, we should probably end it there this evening. Yeah. And tomorrow, all day long, I'll be back here. Everyone is welcome who wants to come from Beginning at 9.30 tomorrow morning? Yeah, we'll have a whole day dedicated to uh, looking through the illusions of identification. Thank you so much, Ajahn. Um, just a quick announcement. Most people probably know how we operate on this practice of generosity. And um special example, having Ajahn here to reflect on the fact that these teachings have been offered for 2,500 or so years, all on this basis of generosity <clears throat> and the 
monastic sangha being a, an example of that, of offering the teachings freely. And uh, when we have guest teachers like Ajahn, two-thirds of whatever is offered supports um, Ajahn, and then the other third supports the center. Uh, but it's just part of our practice here to really receive the teachings, receive the center, the whole history and lineage. That's a free gift offered because people before us have practiced and shared these teachings, and we can support the continuation of that and then take joy in that ourselves. And if you have any questions, I'll be around um, to answer them afterwards. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Ajahn. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.